How do you respond to trials and even tragedy when it comes into your life? Where do you turn when that call comes in the middle of the night that there's been a car accident? Or your dad's had a heart attack? Or here you, when you hear the word cancer from the doctor? Or when your relationships are breaking down and there's marital difficulties? Trials and difficulties will come. And when they come, where will you take refuge? How will you respond? Who will you turn to? In, in one sense, you won't know until you're in the middle of that. But God prepares us for trials and tragedies in life by teaching us from His Scriptures, giving us stories that we can plug ourselves into and, and see ourselves in. In Daniel 3 this morning, we're going to see the response of God's people as they face a severe trial and prepare to die. It's almost impossible for us as Americans to fully grasp and understand the situation God's people, Israel, faced in the book of Daniel. In our relatively short history as a nation, we Americans have never had our army totally defeated. Our land occupied by a foreign military power never had our capital city and our national monuments and churches burned to the ground. We've never had our nation's religious and business and educational and political leaders taken away from us. Well, that's exactly what's happening to Israel in the book of Daniel. As the superpower of the ancient world, the Babylonians conquered Israel under King Nebuchadnezzar and began to assimilate the Jews into Babylonian life and culture far from the land of Israel. Now this was unthinkable for the Jew. After all, they had the promises God made to their father Abraham to give them a promised land. The land of Palestine, the land of Israel. They had the promise God made to their great King David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne of Israel forever. And now they're kicked out of the land and they have no king. You can imagine the Jews would be asking questions after such a crushing defeat. How could this profound tragedy happen? How could disaster occur? Was God unable to keep His promises? Is God powerless in the face of the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar? Is God dead? Why, oh why, oh why did this happen to them? Well, to start with, I'm going to take you to Daniel chapter 1 to begin this morning. Daniel chapter 1. We want to do a little background before we get to Daniel chapter 3. Follow along with me as I read Daniel 1, starting in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. There's the bare facts of the situation from a worldly viewpoint. But now, verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim 
king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, that's in Babylon, to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. What's the real cause of this tragedy? It's God. It is God who is in control. It is God who is sovereign. He is bringing judgment upon the nation Israel for loving and serving other gods in the land of Israel that He had promised to them. And now He is bringing judgment upon them just as He said He would. In Leviticus 26, God laid out the blessings of obedience and the curses that would befall Israel for the worship of false gods that resulted inevitably in their disobedience towards him. The prophet Isaiah had warned King Hezekiah of Israel about 100 years before. In Isaiah 43, verse 5, we read, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you whom you will father shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. God had told them this would happen for their disobedience. And the Lord is bringing this severe discipline upon His people out of love and out of a righteous jealousy for them so that they might repent and return to Him and serve Him alone as the one true God. The Lord is even willing to endure shame and humiliation before the world in order to deliver His people from their sin. Look again at verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into His hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And He brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of His God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. From the very temple of God, these vessels had been taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar put them in the temple of his God in Babylon. Well, what's the conclusion? What's the point? What would the world interpret this to mean? Clearly, to the Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylons, they think it means their gods are better, stronger, and greater than the God of Israel. Many of the people of Israel think the same thing. But this is a God who loves and delivers in unconventional ways. This is a God who is willing to be shamed and humiliated in the eyes of the world if that is what it takes to bring His people to repentance and deliver them. Just as Jesus, 600 years later, would despise the shame and endure the cross, endure a, humili a humiliating death by crucifixion to deliver His people from their sins. And Daniel, by writing this prophecy, is reminding his people that the God of Israel is still with them even in Babylon. He is reminding them that despite the appearances, God is there. That He is sovereign. He is in control. Even as they are suffering as exiles in a strange land. Now let's read verses 3 and th three to 7. And get introduced to our four 
young, intelligent, and handsome Jewish men who are the key in these first three chapters of Daniel. This section, starting in verse 3, makes it clear that King Nebuchadnezzar's plans are to assimilate these young leaders of Israel into the Babylonian ways and customs. Verse 3 of Daniel 1. Then the king commanded Aphanaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youth without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Their new names are given to change their identity. To associate them not with the God of Israel, but with the gods of Babylon. Their new names all refer to one of the gods of Babylon. They are being assimilated, brainwashed, if you will, into the Babylonian ways to try to move on from their ways as Jews in the land of Israel. Well, now let's stop in chapter 2 and pick up one more important detail about Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And only Daniel is able to interpret it. Let's look at chapter 2 and verse 31 for Daniel's description of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and his interpretation. Daniel 2, verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. This is Daniel speaking. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. Notice who Daniel says is responsible for your kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar. He says God has given it to him. To whom God, the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. 
He goes on in verses 39 to 43 to describe the other kingdoms which will follow Babylon. The empires of Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And he finishes his interpretation starting in verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Now shall, nor shall the kingdoms be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. The point of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is that the kingdom of Babylon, along with all other earthly kingdoms, will pass away. And God's kingdom will supersede all others and last into eternity. The stone cut from the mountain without human hands represents the Messiah, represents Christ, who will destroy all of the kingdoms and sit on the throne forever. Well, what is the king's response to this news? Verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him rule over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained in the king's court. So now we come to chapter 3. We have a king who seems humbled before the one true God. And three young Jewish men placed in positions of authority in Babylon over the civil affairs of the province. That brings us to chapter 3. There are three themes developed in chapter 3 of Daniel. There's the theme of intimidation in verses 1 to 15. There's the theme of faithfulness in verses 16 to 23. There's the theme of deliverance in verses 24 to 30. Let's look at the first theme of intimidation in verses 1 to 15. Here we see the coercion and the pressure of the world on believers to forsake the one true God and compromise their faith. Follow along with me as I read, starting in Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, 
You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This image. The word usually is used of a human form. It was 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. Now I looked around for something that's about that size. The Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor is a little smaller than that, 20 feet shorter and a little thinner. So that gives you some idea of how magnificent this gold-plated idol that Nebuchadnezzar set before them was. What's interesting is what did we just read about in chapter 2? We just read about an image that had a head of gold, and that was identified with Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar was told that he would not be king over Babylon forever, that his empire would be destroyed, and it would be reduced to rubble, and that God would set up his own kingdom that would last forever. And Nebuchadnezzar praised God for this. But what we find here is Nebuchadnezzar is sitting up a false idol of worship. You see, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, they were polytheists. They had many, many, many gods. And so adding one more to the list really didn't make that much difference to them. But that's not the God of Israel. The God of Israel demands worship of Him and Him alone. Daniel... And his three friends knew that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew they could not worship this image. They could not worship Nebuchadnezzar's idol and also worship the one true God. Well, this is at its heart a loyalty ceremony. It requires religious and political homage be paid to Nebuchadnezzar. And the assumption here is that everyone, like Nebuchadnezzar himself in Babylon, is a pluralist. That is, they all worship many gods. And as far as Nebuchadnezzar was concerned, sure, you can keep your own little god. You just have to worship mine too. And in Daniel 3, verses 1 to 7, we see three kinds of intimidation going on. We see the intimidation of authority. We see the intimidation of conformity, and we see the intimidation of job security. The intimidation from authority is seen in the fact that seven times in the first seven verses, the king's name is mentioned. The authority of the king is immense, and it is behind this worship. There is also the intimidation of conformity. In verses 4 to 7, you see that these government officials, their, their job security is on the line here. If they don't bow and worship, at the very least they're going to be fired. But as you heard, they're going to be killed as well. 
I find it interesting also that while the band is playing the music and while everyone is burying their nose in the sand before the image, that paints a picture that is very powerful. Can you imagine being one of the people who are not willing to conform, are not willing to get in line to do what Nebuchadnezzar wants them to do? Go down to verse 8. You'll see a different kind of intimidation. The intimidation of jealous malice. Verse 8, Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. There are certain Jews. Do you get the sneering nature of their comment? They're jealous of the position that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have. And here's an opportunity to get them, to take advantage of them. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are these men. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These Chaldeans, these residents, natives of Babylon, are enemies of God's people and they are ready to pounce at every opportunity. Also in this section, we see the intimidation of deadly pressure. Verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Do you get the arrogance of King Nebuchadnezzar in saying that? His answer is, nobody can deliver you out of my hands because I am the all-powerful king. That is really what Daniel chapter 3 is about. Who is God? Who is king? Is it Nebuchadnezzar or is it the one true God? That's the battle here. Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were the subject of intense, intense intimidation. Intense pressure. How do you counteract that? Well, it helps to recognize that the intimidation is coming from a source that has no real or eternal power over you. I think the very language Daniel used to tell this story 
conveys this in an almost mocking fashion. Notice in the very first verse, we are told King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. Now what does a Jew know about, from his Old Testament, what does he know about true gods? Can you make them? You can't make gods. But here Nebuchadnezzar in verse 1 made a god. And in verse 15 it's repeated. He made a god. Notice also, seven times in verses 1 through 7, Daniel says, King Nebuchadnezzar set up an idol. Does a true God need to be set up? Does, does He need to be stood in place so that everybody can see Him? The Jews of Daniel Day knew, for, Daniel Day knew this, was, this was a mocking kind of refrain from Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar made gods? He set them up? The implication is they are powerless. They have no power to do anything. So the way you deal with it is you realize there is no fear in that. That the one true God, the real God, the God of heaven and earth, the God of Israel, was not made or set up. He didn't need a king to help him. Well, who is the real true God? Is it Nebuchadnezzar? Is it a God of his own creation? Or is it the one true God? The pressure of intimidation can be resisted if you remember your God, that he is with you, which the three friends of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are about to demonstrate. This brings us to the second theme of faithfulness, verses 16 to 24. This is a stubborn faithfulness born of trust in God alone that results in obedience. Follow along with me, with me as I read Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Daniel's three friends, in effect, tell Nebuchadnezzar, don't waste your time asking us again. They didn't give his offer to reconsider a second thought. They didn't think about what would happen to their families if they lose their jobs, if they lose their lives. They didn't think what would happen to the Lord's people if these leaders weren't around to kind of cushion the blow for the Jews who've been exiled in Babylon. But they were prepared to die if needed. They believed the Lord would deliver them. They trusted Him completely. They trusted in Him even if He chose not to deliver them from the fire. And in a rebuke to Nebuchadnezzar, they made sure that Nebuchadnezzar knew their lives rested in the hands of the one true God, not in the hands of the king of Babylon. Whether in life or death, they trusted the Lord would deliver them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had a mature faith. Even though they didn't know God's will in this specific circumstance, they did know that the Lord 
has revealed in His Word, in His revealed Word, that they are to have no other gods before Him. And they are to trust Him and Him alone for their deliverance. Now, some would prefer the beginning of verse 18 where it says, but if not, wasn't in the Bible, wasn't in Daniel. They think that expressing it this way shows a lack of faith in God's power to save. Some think they should have called on the Spirit to to bind the fire. For two or three have gathered to request that God bind the fire. But they know. They know God deeply. They trust Him. They don't have an immature faith. I know some of you here in this room have struggled with the burden that other Christians have placed upon you regarding physical illness. That if you just had enough faith, God would cure you. That it's always going to turn out well. But we don't know the will of God in specific circumstances of our lives. He works for our good, but we don't understand how He works for our good. And here Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego acknowledge we may be toast. We may be ashes at the bottom of the furnace. But even so, we trust our God. You see, true faith knows the power of God. And yet, true faith guards the freedom of God to do as God chooses according to His will. True faith holds tight to the person of God. To the truth of Him. Even in the midst of very difficult circumstances. It is so clear from the narrative, from the text, they don't know what's going to happen to them. That brings us to the third theme, the theme of deliverance in verses 19 to 30. Follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was charged against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. 
He declared Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. God delivers them from the fire. But notice how He delivered them. You see, God could have extinguished the flames, couldn't He? God could have had them walk right out of the furnace, couldn't He? But what did He do? He sent a fourth one into the burning, fiery furnace. What is this fourth person in the burning, fiery furnace? Many in the early church said this was a pre-incarnate Christ. And it may well be. But the fact that Nebuchadnezzar in verse 28 calls us an angel and the, the very phrase, the, the sons of God, and the fact that in Daniel chapter 6, you remember how Daniel is delivered from the lion's den? By an angel. So it very well may be an angel. It may be the pre-incarnate Christ. But either way, who was in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? God was. God's presence and God's power was there in the fire with them. God delivered them from the fire. The Lord did not leave them in the fire alone. He was with them in the trial. The one true God is the one who delivers in His power and in His own way. He is God. He is with you always. He never forsakes you. The story is about worshiping the one true God and not empty idols made by human hands and set up by us, for these empty idols have no power and cannot deliver what our hearts need. Now, we have more sophisticated idols today than Nebuchadnezzar did. But we have them all the same. I have them. You have them. For some, our idols are in the parking lot outside this morning. For some, our idols reside on a flat screen in our living rooms. Or perhaps attached to your computer. For some of us, our idols live in our pockets. We carry them around with us, don't we? For some, our idols are in our office. For some, our idols are in the bottom of a bottle, the end of a syringe, in a pill. We all struggle with our allegiance to the one true God. It's so easy for Satan in the world and our own flesh to cause us to drift away from focusing on our great God and His great Savior, Jesus Christ, and forget that He is in Omaha today. He is among us today. 
And He not only is the great God who is in America and in Omaha just like He was in Babylon, He is the great God who is with us in the trial. He doesn't leave us alone. He is always there. We are blind to it so often, but He is there for us to deliver us. For by God's unmerited grace, we have been given a Savior in Jesus Christ who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth by the Father, and who also is our high priest, who can sympathize with us, and who promises to always be with us until the end of the age. Now, he doesn't keep us out of the operating room, but he's in the operating room with us. He doesn't keep us out of the funeral parlor, but he's in the funeral parlor with us. Christ finds you wherever you are as a believer and He is there with you, standing beside you. He has you by the hand. He will not let you go. He finds you in your sorrow and in your depression and He walks with you. He is inside of us as believers through the power of His Spirit. And just like there is a God, There was a God in Babylon who looked after his children. So too, we have a God who looks after us today. And sometimes we get frustrated with the world we live in. But despite appearances, God is here. He is with us. The story of deliverance tells us about worship. Worship that prepares us to die. But it also tells us how to live. Let's close this morning with the words of Jesus from Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. May we deny ourselves and follow Christ. May we die to self and live to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are amazed at the grace You have poured out upon us. We are amazed at the forgiveness, Father, that You have provided in Your Son, Jesus Christ. We are awed by how great is the provision of our salvation. We are so thankful, Father, for our high priest, Jesus Christ, who can sympathize with our weaknesses, who is with us in the trial, who has us by the hand and will never let us go. Help us to understand the reality of that, Lord, as we walk through our everyday lives. And Father, even as many of us are comfortable without significant trials and difficulties in our lives at this point, 
Use this message. Use, use the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the burning fiery furnace to prepare us for the trial. So that when it does come, Father, when the, the temptations of the world and the, the difficulties of, of, uh, of our own flesh come to bear upon our hearts, that we would turn to You and Your Son, Jesus, and not to our idols. I pray, Father, that You would arm us with the unconquerable power of Your Spirit, that we might not yield to any terrors of threats or men, but that we would stand fast in the reverence of Your name until the end. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.